Hello and welcome back to Songs for FRCR. We're back after a short hiatus. There was no episode last week, mainly because we had some issues publishing the podcast on certain platforms. But that's all sorted and we are back now with a brand new episode on the most commonly requested topic on Songs for FRCR. We've had so many emails and tweets about this. It's everyone's favourite, the idiopathic interstitial pneumonias. Pretty much everyone's reaction when that topic is mentioned but it doesn't need to be that way. It's not a difficult topic and we'll try and make it a lot easier for you in this episode. We're trying something new this week. As well as the podcast episode, we've created a poster or a handout, call it what you will, to do with idiopathic interstitial pneumonias. The idea is you print it off, stick it on your bedroom wall and every morning as you walk past it, have a quick look through and over time the knowledge of these will become second nature. If you'd like a copy of the poster, drop us an email at songsforfrcr at gmail.com and we'll get that over to you as soon as possible. Music today is courtesy of a young lady from the Philippines called Mia Flores singing a beautiful cover of one of my favourite songs as a child. So let's not waste any more time. Here we go, interstitial lung disease. Go on, go on, leave me breathless. Come on. Mm, yeah. The daylight's fading slowly. Before we talk about the imaging findings of interstitial lung disease, I am actually going to recap some lung anatomy. It's not that bad. A background appreciation of the anatomy is important in helping you to understand the imaging patterns of interstitial lung disease. So let's start with things we all know. The trachea splits into the right and left main bronchus. Each main bronchus, the right and left, divide into lobar bronchi. These are bronchi that go to every lobe, hence the name. The lobar bronchi are secondary bronchi, which give rise to tertiary bronchi, the segmental bronchi. So segmental is tertiary. 
and what these do is supply the bronchopulmonary segments. A bronchopulmonary segment, remember, is the largest subdivision of the lung that can be surgically resected. Hopefully you'll remember from the part one anatomy exam, each bronchopulmonary segment is a pyramidal shape. They're separated by fibrous septa and this pyramid shape points to the root of the lung. So the apex of the pyramid points to the lung root while the base is facing the pleural surface. The segmental bronchus, the tertiary one that I've mentioned, and the tertiary pulmonary artery all enter this pyramid at the apex. So try and picture that in your mind. And the venous drainage for each of these bronchopulmonary segments is from the interstitium in between each segment via the intersegmental tributaries of the pulmonary veins. So nice and easy so far, trachea dividing into a right and left main bronchus, which give rise to the secondary lobar bronchi, which give rise to the tertiary segmental bronchi, supplying each bronchopulmonary segment. Now, the conducting bronchioles and terminal bronchioles do not participate in any gaseous exchange. That's important to remember. And finally, the terminal bronchioles will divide into respiratory bronchioles, which do participate in gaseous exchange. The respiratory bronchioles have very small, thin wall alveoli that bulge out from their lumen. So that's why the respiratory bronchioles are able to participate in both gaseous transport and gaseous exchange. So let's just recap our branching pattern quickly. Trachea into right and left main bronchus. Each main bronchus divides into a secondary lobar bronchus. The lobar bronchi divide into tertiary segmental bronchi supplying each pyramidal bronchopulmonary segment. Segmental bronchi then go on to divide into multiple generations of conducting bronchioles which go on to divide into terminal bronchioles. Both conducting and terminal bronchioles, remember, do not participate in gaseous exchange. Finally, we reach the respiratory bronchioles, which, as their name suggests, are able to participate in gaseous exchange because they have lots of thin-walled alveoli bulging out from their lumen. But we are not done with the division, not yet. Respiratory bronchioles divide into alveolar ducts. The ducts will then terminate into alveolar sacs and then each single alveolus. And now we're done. The alveolus is the single basic structural unit in the lung and a healthy adult will have around 300 million of them. Both the canals of Lambert and the pores of Cone are collateral aeration pathways. So the canals of Lambert, first of all, these are collateral pathways between the distal bronchial tree and the alveoli, while the pores of cone are connections between adjacent alveoli. Like I've said, they're both just collateral aeration pathways. And one thing to note is they're poorly formed in children, which is why kids tend to have a high incidence of round pneumonia. There are three more terms that I'd like you to know. The first is a primary pulmonary lobule. It's not very commonly used in radiology, but I want you to know it anyway. A primary pulmonary lobule is the unit of lung distal to every respiratory bronchiole. 
So that includes the alveolar ducts, the alveolar sacs and the alveoli, which you'll know if you are listening. Like I've said, it's not a commonly used term in radiology, but I mentioned it anyway. The next thing I want you to appreciate is what a pulmonary acinus is. An acinus is the bit of the lung or the lung unit distal to a terminal bronchiole. Let me just remind you of the branching pattern if you have a memory of a goldfish. Remember it went trachea, main bronchi, lobar bronchi, segmental bronchi supplying bronchopulmonary segments, then loads of generations of conducting bronchioles, then further generations of terminal bronchioles and then respiratory bronchioles and then alveolar ducts, alveolar sacs and single alveoli. So I've said that a primary pulmonary lobule is any is the units of lung distal to the respiratory bronchioles and that was the alveolar ducts, alveolar sacs and the alveoli. The Next thing I talked about was the pulmonary acinus, and this is any portion of lung distal to the terminal bronchiole. The terminal bronchiole, remember, comes after the conducting bronchioles. So if you think about it, a pulmonary acinus will be supplied by a first order respiratory bronchiole, which is the first thing distal to the terminal bronchioles. So respiratory bronchiole and everything distal to that forms a pulmonary acinus, every unit. The acini are separated by incomplete intralobular septa. When you group around 12 pulmonary acini together, that is called a secondary pulmonary lobule, an SPL, and that is a key term in respiratory radiology. So the secondary pulmonary lobule, I've said, is the key unit of respiratory radiology. It's formed from approximately 12 pulmonary acini, as I've said. Each SPL is supplied by a lobular bronchiole and pulmonary artery branch. Each is drained, obviously, by the pulmonary veins, which run in the interlobular septa. And like I've already told you, within each secondary pulmonary lobule is approximately 12 acini. Each acinus is separated, again like I've already said, by intralobular septa. So the intralobular septa separate the acini within a secondary pulmonary lobule. Each secondary pulmonary lobule is separated from the next SPL by interlobular septa. So to recap, the secondary pulmonary lobule is the elemental, the core unit of lung function and you really ought to understand what it is. Each SPL has a central artery and bronchiole, which obviously run in the middle, called the centrilobular artery and centrilobular bronchiole. The artery you can normally see on high-res CT as a faint dot. The lymphatic drainage and the venous drainage is in the periphery of every SPL. So any pathology of the lymphatic or venous system often shows on imaging as septal thickening. I think that's enough anatomy. Let's get back to interstitial lung disease and how to identify each one. 
So where to begin with interstitial lung disease? Well, how about this? We've all heard the phrase, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. I think that means if you upset a woman, she will have a wide variety of available responses to torture you with. However, men are different. Men are very much like the lungs in that they have a very limited repertoire of responses if they're insulted. The lungs only really know how to do five or six things if there is an injury or an insult to them. And luckily for us, we can group these five or six things into neat titles and just memorise the patterns. These responses, i.e. the only response to injury the lung has, are called the interstitial pneumonias. And we'll go through each one turn by turn and recognise how to spot them in an exam. The first I'm going to talk about is UIP, usual interstitial pneumonia. UIP is the pattern of disease you will get if a patient has pulmonary fibrosis that is idiopathic. So idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis gives you a UIP pattern. What is a UIP pattern? Let me tell you. Honeycombing is key to spot in UIP. It is highly specific for UIP, so honeycombing comes first. Then reticulation. Reticular shadows tend to be in the immediate subpleural lung area and often they have some additional associated honeycombing and traction bronchiectasis. That's just when there is bronchiectasis caused by traction from the fibrosis. So UIP has honeycombing, which is highly specific, and reticulation in the immediate subpleural areas of lung. The changes tend to be predominantly peripherally in the lung and within the lower lobes. They can get some ground glass changes, but never in isolation. You wouldn't get only ground glass. I'm going to repeat this again because repetition is the only way to learn. UIP will predominantly have honeycombing and reticulation in the subpleural areas. It may have some ground glass, but reticulation and honeycombing will be predominant. Some textbooks state that the ratio of reticulation to ground glass is always more than one, i.e. there is always a whole lot more reticulation than there is ground glass changes. Finally, if the fibrosis becomes advanced, as with all cases of fibrosis, you can get volume loss of the lobes. Now I've said UIP is the pattern you will get if a patient has idiopathic, so unknown cause of pulmonary fibrosis. However, there are other diseases that are associated with a UIP pattern. It's a list to learn, one of the many lists you'll be learning for the 2A. However, never fear, we are here with a lovely mnemonic and the one I've come up with is HARSH. Let's go through that mnemonic for diseases associated with a UIP pattern. H is hermonsky pudlak syndrome. A, there are two for A amiodarone, lung, and asbestosis. R, again two for R, rheumatoid arthritis and radiation or radiotherapy. S is systemic sclerosis, which can sometimes give you a UIP pattern. However, please note an NSIP pattern, which is the next one I'm going to talk about 
is more common with systemic sclerosis. And finally, H, hypersensitivity pneumonitis chronic. I'm going to say the whole thing again just to recap. So UIP is the first pattern of interstitial pneumonia we're going to talk about. UIP is the pattern most commonly found with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. If you get pulmonary fibrosis for no cause, and that's pretty harsh, and harsh is the mnemonic for diseases associated with a UIP pattern. These are hermonsky pudlak syndrome, asbestosis, amiodarone lung, radiation treatment, rheumatoid arthritis, systemic sclerosis, although remember, more common to get NSIP with systemic sclerosis, and finally, hypersensitivity in pneumonitis, chronic. What will we see in this harsh UIP that we've developed? We will see honeycombing. It's the H's again. Honeycombing is key. It's highly specific for UIP. We'll also see reticulation in the immediate subpleural areas. All the changes we'll see will be peripherally and predominantly within the lower lobes of the lung. We may also see some associated traction bronchiectasis and possibly ground glass changes, although not very much. And that's it for UIP. That's all you need to know. Let's move on to our next pattern of response. One of the few that I've said our lung has, that's called NSIP, non-specific interstitial pneumonitis. How will we spot NSIP? It's very easy. Like its predecessor, UIP, NSIP tends to be predominantly in the lower lobes. It's often described as having an apico-basilar gradient, so the changes get progressively more severe as you go from the top to the bottom of the lungs. That is where the similarities end with UIP. The hallmark of NSIP is ground glass pacification. Remember, ground glass was uncommon in UIP, or if there was, very little. With NSIP, ground glass pacification is the hallmark. You absolutely must have ground glass pacification. Whereas UIP, I told you, affected the subpleural lung, with NSIP, you tend to get sparing of the immediately subpleural areas of the lung. You will see thickened bronchovascular bundles, reticular shadowing, and again, traction bronchiectasis. The changes of NSIP tend to be symmetrical. In up to 90% of cases, changes are symmetrical and usually subpleural in up to 68% of cases. But remember, sparing of the immediately subpleural areas of lung. So NSIP is symmetrical and subpleural with an apico-basilar gradient. If you have an exam question which describes a, an asymmetrical or an upper lobe predominant disease process, it's not likely to be NSIP. Just like with the list of diseases causing UIP, you also have a list of diseases to learn that cause NSIP. But I have another mnemonic. The mnemonic is CHARM G. Let's talk about each letter and what it represents. So we'll start with the C in CHARM. There are three things that represents. 
connective tissue disease, anything like SLE, systemic sclerosis, which I've said is commonly causing NSIP patterns, Sjogren's and polydermatomyositis. So connective tissue disease is the first C. Then there's chemo and radiotherapy and Castleman's disease. That's the C's. The H is HIV. A is autoimmune diseases, particularly rheumatoid arthritis, also things like primary biliary cirrhosis, Hashimoto's thyroiditis and antisynthetase syndrome. We are on the R. The R is something called Rosé-Dorfman disease. And finally, M. M is myelodysplasia. That's charm. I added the G because I couldn't make a word with a G in it. And the G stands for graft versus host disease. So charm G is our mnemonic for diseases associated with an NSIP pattern. I'll go through the letters again. C is for connective tissue diseases, chemo and radiotherapy, and Castleman's disease. The connective tissue diseases in particular are SLE, systemic sclerosis, Sjogren's syndrome, and polydermatomyositis. H is HIV. A is autoimmune diseases, particularly rheumatoid, primary biliary cirrhosis, Hashimoto's and antisynthetase syndrome. R is Rosé-Dorfman disease and M is myelodysplasia. Finally, G is graft versus host disease. I do appreciate it's not easy to remember lists of diseases from audio. However, if you do print off the handout, the poster that we've created, we have put the mnemonics in there with the diseases. So when you look at that poster every morning, you will learn them very, very easily. Quick recap, we've done UIP and NSIP, two of the very few responses the lung has to insult. UIP had the mnemonic of harsh and that was primarily with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. What were the imaging features of UIP? Honeycombing was highly specific. Reticulation in the immediate subpleural areas and traction bronchiectasis. You may get some ground glass changes, but not very much. And the pattern of disease tends to be in the lower lobes and subpleural areas. NSIP is a symmetrical subpleural disease with a apico-basilar gradient sparing the immediate subpleural areas of lung. The hallmark of NSIP is ground glass pacification with immediate subpleural sparing. You can also get thickened bronchovascular bundles, reticular opacities and traction bronchiectasis. The mnemonic for the diseases associated with NSIP is CHARM-G. So that's UIP and NSIP. Some final housekeeping points to note on these two patterns. UIP has no response to steroids. That's an important thing to remember. And NSIP, remember, does not have any honeycombing. Honeycombing is a feature of UIP. You will not see it in NSIP. So UIP and NSIP I did together because they have some similarities. We'll now move on to the third pattern of response, the lung nose. 
The next pattern of response is called cryptogenic organizing pneumonia. Now, an organizing pneumonia is just a histological pattern of alveolar inflammation. When that pattern occurs without an underlying known cause, we call it cryptogenic, and that's the term, cryptogenic organizing pneumonia. COP tends to occur in patients around 55 to 60 years old, a similar group to those that tend to get NSIP. What would you see on COP imaging? You would see what you'd expect for something called cryptogenic organising pneumonia. You'd see patchy consolidation, generally within the subpleural and peribronchovascular distributions. There will be small, ill-defined peribronchial nodules, bronchial wall thickening and bronchial wall dilatation, and you can also get ground glass changes and a crazy paving pattern. Crazy paving is simply when you have ground glass changes with super added septal thickening, giving you a crazy paving pattern. There is one feature that is specific to cryptogenic organising pneumonia called the atoll sign. The atoll sign is a reverse halo sign. In other words, you have ground glass changes surrounded by dense consolidation. You'll only see it in about 20% of patients with COP, but if you do see it, it's specific. COP is usually caused by infection, as you would expect, but it can also be a drug response as well as response to an inhaled pathogen. Fortunately, patients with COP do respond to steroids, unlike those with UIP. That's three down, three to go. Let's take it from the top because I will make you memorize this if it kills me. UIP. UIP is the pattern of disease seen in patients with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, but it's also associated with a load of diseases which are remembered with the mnemonic HARSH. UIP has a specific feature of honeycombing. Reticulation is in the subpleural lung with associated traction bronchiectasis. Tends to be peripheral and lower low predominant disease involvement and ground glass is limited. NSIP. NSIP is symmetrical and subpleural, although spares the immediate subpleural lung. It has usually an apico-basilar gradient and the hallmark of NSIP is ground glass opacification with, like I've said, immediate subpleural sparing. You'll see thickened bronchovascular bundles, reticular shadowing and traction bronchiectasis again. The mnemonic here is CHARM-G. And cryptogenic organising pneumonia, which is patchy consolidation with small, ill-defined peribronchial nodules. The consolidation tends to be subpleural and peribronchovascular. There is bronchial wall thickening, bronchial wall dilatation and ground glass, crazy paving with a specific atoll sign, the reverse halo sign. Take a break, we are halfway there.
The next two patterns I'll talk about together occur in smokers. Some people think these two patterns are a continuous spectrum and are actually the same disease process, but I'm going to talk about them separately because that's not been made official yet. The first smoking-related interstitial pneumonia is RBILD. RBILD stands for Respiratory Bronchiolitis Interstitial Lung Disease. In your exam, this will be 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, heavy smokers with progressive shortness of breath and a chronic cough. On examination, they'll have inspiratory crackles. And on imaging, which of course is the most important thing you're interested in, they will have two key features. The first key feature is centrilobular nodules. These will be all over the lung. These are not confined to any particular lobar distribution. Randomly distributed all over the lungs, poorly defined centrilobular nodules. For those of you who aren't clear on what a centrilobular nodule actually represents, think back to my original anatomy talk at the beginning of this. I talked about the secondary pulmonary lobule, which has in the centre a centrilobular artery and a centrilobular bronchiole. If you recall, I said you can usually see the centrilobular artery on high-res CT, but you can't see the centrilobular bronchiole. If that bronchiole is obstructed for some reason, infection, inflammation, then you can see it. So a centrilobular nodule is simply an obstructed, opacified centrilobular bronchiole running in the centre of our secondary pulmonary lobule. So the first of the two key features of our build is centrilobular nodules that are everywhere. The second feature is ground glass opacification. It tends to be patchy ground glass opacification and also usually upper zone predominant. So our build, middle-aged, 30 to 40 year old, heavy smokers with progressive shortness of breath and a chronic cough. Two key features on imaging are random centrilobular nodules and patchy ground glass opacification, usually within the upper lobes. Once the disease advances, then you'll see lower lobe subpleural fibrosis. You might see bronchial wall thickening and centrilobular emphysema. So that's our build. The Next smoking-related pattern is DIP, which is called disquamative interstitial pneumonia. DIP, as I've said, is the other smoking-related interstitial pneumonia and tends to be, you can really think of it as the end-stage version of our build. Again, this is middle-aged heavy smokers. 90% of people with DIP, it's caused by smoking. In a very small proportion, well, 10%, it's caused by something else. That can be rheumatoid arthritis, scleroderma, HIV, asbestosis or drugs. But that's unusual. In an exam, it would be unfair if they gave you another cause. Most likely, it is smoking related. D 
TIP is essentially a smoking related chronic centrilobular emphysema with bronchial wall thickening. How we tell it apart from our build? First of all, imaging wise it's unreliable and if you're diagnosing one of these two you normally need a lung biopsy to differentiate between our build and DIP. In an exam however they would expect you to be able to differentiate them and these are the main ways you're going to do that. First of all DIP tends to be bilateral and symmetrical. It also has ground glass changes like with our build but the ground glass is a lot more prominent with DIP. They can get a little peripheral and very limited amount of honeycombing. But one of the key features differentiating DIP from our build is cystic change. You may get small cysts or you will get small cysts which tend to be basal predominant. So our build and DIP are the two main smoking related interstitial pneumonias. Our build is middle-aged heavy smokers with progressive shortness of breath. Two key features there are patchy ground glass changes, which tends to have an upper lobe predominant distribution and poorly defined centrilobular nodules everywhere. In the advanced stage, you can get some subpleural fibrosis, bronchial wall thickening and some emphysema. So R build and DIP are the two smoking related interstitial pneumonias. Our build is middle-aged smokers, middle-aged heavy smokers with progressive shortness of breath. Two key imaging features are patchy ground glass changes, predominantly within the upper zones, and poorly defined centrilobular nodules, which are everywhere. You can get subpleural fibrosis in the later stages. DIP, key differentiating features are more ground glass than our build tends to have cystic change, so small cysts predominantly in the lower zones. It's usually bilateral and symmetrical. Remember I said you can't confidently diagnose the two on imaging alone and a biopsy is usually required. Right, that's four down. I'm counting our bills and DIP as one, so we've done four now. There are two more to go. Let that sink in, have a break, listen to the cause, and we'll come back and finish off the final two. Next, interstitial pneumonia is LIP. LIP is lymphoid interstitial pneumonia. This tends to be adults in their 50s and if it's a child presenting with LIP, this can be a feature or a presenting feature of AIDS. So remember that. They will present with approximately six months of a slow onset cough and shortness of breath. 20% of them will have hypertrophy of the salivary glands, so that can be a dead giveaway in an exam. Also, 80%, if they mention lab results, will have a polyclonal or an IgM monoclonal gammopathy. 
or hypogammaglobulinemia. These will be giveaways in an exam. It's very rare to get LIP on its own. It's usually associated with Sjogren's disease or with AIDS or HIV. But there is a list of diseases again to learn here. The mnemonic I have for this is SCRAPS. So, S is for Sjogren's, I've already mentioned. C is Castleman's disease. R is rheumatoid arthritis, which seems to feature in every one of these. A is AIDS and autoimmune thyroiditis. P is pulmonary amyloidosis and S is SLE. I'm going to repeat those. The mnemonic for diseases associated with LIP, which I've said rarely occurs alone, is SCRAPS. Sjogren's disease, Castleman's disease, rheumatoid arthritis, autoimmune thyroiditis, pulmonary amyloidosis, and SLE, systemic lupus erythematosus. What are the key features of LIP? Apart from the stuff I've already mentioned, there are four key imaging features of LIP. The first is pulmonary nodules. These are small, small ill-defined nodules, usually of variable sizes. They're not uniform. The second is ground glass opacification. This can sometimes be lower lobe predominant. Then we have thin-walled cysts, cystic change like we had with DIP. However, these cysts tend to be in a perivascular or subpleural distribution. Often they will abut vessels and can also be very, very deep in the lung parenchyma. Finally, a mediastinal lymphadenopathy. So the four features of LIP were small, ill-defined, random sizes, pulmonary nodules, ground glass pacification, scattered thin-walled cysts, and mediastinal lymphadenopathy. You will see things like pneumothoraces with LIP also. Let me just recap LIP, which is lymphoid interstitial pneumonia. Adults in their 50s tend to get it. If it's a child, it may be the presenting feature of AIDS. They tend to have a half a year history of gradual onset cough and dyspnea. 20% will have hypertrophy of the salivary glands, which can be a giveaway in an exam. And the majority will have polyclonal or IgM monoclonal gammopathy or hypogammaglobulinemia. The mnemonic to remember the diseases associated with LIP is SCRAPS, Sjogren's, Castleman's disease, rheumatoid, AIDS and autoimmune thyroiditis, pulmonary amyloidosis and SLE. The four main features of LIP on imaging will be small ill-defined pulmonary nodules, ground glass opacification, thin-walled cysts, and mediastinal lymphadenopathy, plus minus pneumothoraces. We have reached the final interstitial pneumonia, acute interstitial pneumonia, the only acute one of the lot, AIP. It's also called Hammond-Rich syndrome and histologically is diffuse alveolar damage. 
AIP is the syndrome or the pattern of disease you will see in ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome. So a patient with ARDS, the pattern of pneumonia you will see is AIP. I've said it's the only one that's acute. It is very acute and rapidly progressive, usually 50 year olds as it tends to be with most of these diseases and they have no prior history of any lung disease. A small proportion will have some pre-existing diseases like people with leflunamide-induced AIP. Leflunamide is a disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drug often used in rheumatoid arthritis and that can cause AIP. These patients will present with myalgia, with fever, chills, malaise, and sometimes viral upper respiratory tract infections. They will develop a severe exertional dyspnea within a matter of days. The alveolar damage is usually caused by surfactant destruction, and what you'll see on imaging is bilateral symmetrical ground glass changes extensively. You'll see traction bronchiectasis, in the majority, 80% of patients, which actually correlates with disease severity and duration. There'll be dependent airspace consolidation and architectural lung distortion. So quick recap of AIP, acute interstitial pneumonia, the only acute one of our group, also called Hammond-Rich syndrome. It is the pattern of disease you will see in acute respiratory distress syndrome and they will present with a very short history of a matter of days of exertional dyspnea, fever, myalgia, chills, and sometimes upper respiratory tract infections. A giveaway in an exam is if the patient is taking something called leflunamide, which is an anti-rheumatic drug. Leflunamide is known to cause AIP. On imaging, you will see bilateral symmetrical ground glass opacification, traction bronchiectasis in 80% which correlates with disease duration, dependent airspace consolidation and architectural distortion. That's it. That's the only six responses the lung knows to any insult it receives. I'm going to go over it from the top but only mention the key features of each one. So let's go right back to the beginning to UIP. UIP, the mnemonic to remember the diseases associated with UIP was harsh. Key feature of UIP is honeycombing. It's highly specific. Reticulation in the immediate subpleural lung with associated traction bronchiectasis. UIP tends to be peripheral and lower lobe predominant. They may be ground glass, but very little. NSIP is the symmetrical, subpleural, apico-basilar gradient pattern. It spares the immediate subpleural lung and the hallmark is extensive ground glass opacification. Remember, ground glass sparing the immediate subpleural lung. The mnemonic to remember the diseases associated with NSIP was CHARM-G. Other things you'll see are thickened bronchovascular bundles, particular opacities and traction bronchiectasis. 
We then did COP, cryptogenic organizing pneumonia. As with pneumonias, you will see patchy consolidation, small ill-defined peribronchial nodules, bronchial wall thickening, ground glass and crazy paving, and specifically the atoll sign, which is central ground glass surrounded by consolidation, dense consolidation. You'll only see it in 20% of patients. Next, we did the two smoking-related interstitial pneumonias, R-Build and DIP. R-Build had ground glass opacification and poorly defined centrilobular nodules. They were the two key features of R-Build. The ground glass opacification usually has an upper zone predilection in R-Build. DIP can be thought of as the end stage of our build. This has bilateral and symmetrical, predominantly basal peripheral changes. What you'll see here is small cystic spaces, as well as bronchial wall thickening and centrilobular emphysema. There is a lot more ground glass pacification in DIP compared to our build. LIP was next, lymphoid interstitial pneumonia, which we said occurs in both adults and children, and if in a child, may be the presenting feature of AIDS. We said it rarely occurs on its own, it usually has an associated disease, often Sjogren's or AIDS, but the mnemonic to remember the rest of them was SCRAPS. The key features of LIP on imaging was small pulmonary nodules, of variable sizes, ground glass opacification, thin-walled cysts, and mediastinal lymphadenopathy plus minus pneumothoraces. Finally, we ended with DIP. No, we didn't. We ended with AIP, acute interstitial pneumonia, the one we've just covered. This is the only acute one of the group and had a rapidly progressive course. It's the syndrome we see in ARDS, Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome. Can be associated with lefalunamide, which is a disease-modifying rheumatic drug. The key features are bilateral symmetrical ground glass opacification, traction bronchiectasis in 80%, which correlates with disease duration and airspace consolidation, usually in the dependent portion of the lungs. That is the six patterns of disease, but we're not finished because there are two more things I want to talk about before I let you go. The two things are lamb and Langerhansel histiocytosis. Have a break, have a breather, let all that sink in and we'll cover the other two. Now, exam questions asking about interstitial lung disease 
will often include these two diseases as possible answers. The two diseases I'm talking about are Lam and Langerhans cell histiocytosis. So let's just mention these for sake of completion. Lam or lymphangioleomyomatosis. This is a disease exclusive to females of childbearing age. It may occur on its own, it's a multi-system disorder, or may occur in association with tuberous sclerosis. A woman of childbearing age will present with exertional dyspnea and recurrent pneumothoraces in 80%. That's a good giveaway. On imaging, you will find four features that will help you in an exam. Multiple thin-walled cysts, interlobular septal thickening, a dilated thoracic duct, a chylothorax, and sometimes a hemorrhage. Okay, there are five features. So the multiple thin-walled cysts are of various sizes and are all over the lungs, so uniformly distributed. So lots of cysts of all different sizes uniformly spread out through all the lungs. Let's go over that quickly again. Lam is exclusive to females of childbearing age, will present with exertional dyspnea and recurrent pneumothoraces in the vast majority of cases. Imaging has five features, multiple cysts everywhere, interlobular septal thickening, a dilated thoracic duct, chylothorax, hemorrhage. Some extrathoracic features are a renal angiomyolipoma, splenic cysts, chylus ascites, uterine fibroids and cystic hygroma. So if the question mentions these additional findings, that's another clue to the underlying diagnosis. The extrathoracic findings are renal angiomyolipoma AML, splenic cyst, chylus ascites, uterine fibroids and cystic hygroma. That's LAM. Some patients with LAM will respond well to anti-estrogen treatment. That's it for LAM. Let's move on to Langerhan cell histiocytosis. Finally, Langerhan cell histiocytosis. This can be part of a widespread multi-system Langerhan cell histiocytosis or an isolated pulmonary problem, which is more common. This is a disease of smokers, young smokers. These are 20 to 30, 20 to 40 year old people who are heavy smokers. The associations are mainly the two acute leukemias, AML and ALL. What you will see on imaging depends on whether the disease is in the early or late stages. Early on, you'll see nodules. Later on, you'll see cysts. Let me elaborate. Early on, you'll see nodules. Usually they have irregular margins. They can be thick-walled and cavitating nodules, but the general surrounding lung parenchyma is unremarkable. Later on, as the disease progresses, patients develop cysts. The cysts can be large, they can be variable sizes, thick-walled, thin-walled. You can get confluence of two or more cysts, giving you all sorts of weird shapes of cysts, bilobed ones, clover leaf or branching cysts, 
these are all features of LCH. The extreme bases of the lung tend to be preserved with LCH. Other common findings are ground glass opacification, mosaic attenuation, septal thickening and emphysema as you'd expect with smoking. Finally, as the disease reaches the latest stages, then fibrosis and honeycombing become common. So Langerhans cell histiocytosis, a disease of young smokers, tends to be in the mid and upper zones with sparing of the extreme bases. There is also regional sparing of the cardiophrenic recesses. Early on you get nodules, later on you get cysts. The nodules are often irregular shapes and sizes with irregular margins, sometimes cavitating that become cysts over time. Late stage, you get cysts, which don't tend to involve the extreme bases of the lung. Ground glass changes, mosaic attenuation, septal thickening and emphysema are all common, and in the extreme late stages, honeycombing and fibrosis. That was our two additional diseases. We will cover them again in subsequent episodes. I only thought it's important to mention them here because they're often offered as a differential in exam questions about interstitial lung disease. The two we covered are LAM and LCH. LAM is exclusive to females of childbearing age who present with exertional dyspnea and recurrent pneumothorax in the majority. Five things you will see on imaging, multiple thin-walled cysts, interlobular septal thickening, a big thoracic duct, a chylothorax and hemorrhage sometimes. Extra thoracic features are renal AML, splenic cysts, chylus ascites, uterine fibroids and cystic hygroma. LCH, pulmonary LCH, was a disease of young smokers, generally in the mid and upper zones, sparing the extreme bases and also sparing the cardiophrenic angles. Early on it gives you nodules, later on it gives you cysts and you also have ground glass changes, mosaic attenuation, septal thickening, emphysema and at the end fibrosis and honeycombing. That's it for the idiopathic interstitial pneumonias. We will do further episodes covering things like hypersensitivity pneumonitis, aspergillosis, tuberculosis and other lung diseases. But for now, we hope you enjoyed that episode and hope you learned something. We hope it helped you clear these things in your mind. If you can appreciate some topics are not easy to teach without any visual aids and that's why I've already mentioned we created a poster or a handout, call it whatever you like, to help you remember the things that you've heard today. This is essentially pictures with a few little notes scattered around them. Print off the poster, stick it on your bedroom wall, every morning when you wake up glance through the pictures and you'll remember this stuff in no time. If you would like a copy of our poster, drop us an email at songsforfrcr at gmail.com and we'll get that over to you as soon as possible. 
please do let us know if it helped you. And if it did, we will start to create more visual aids to go with every episode we do. For now, have a great week and we'll see you next time on Songs for FRCR. Music today was from the very talented Mia Flores singing a cover of the iconic cause song, Breathless. <laughs>